Ernie O'Malley evocatively recounted his time in the clandestine keeping of the IRA in the north and west of Clare. O'Malley wrote, Memories of the bitter land war in Clare remained. My guides at night told me bloodthirsty tales as we crossed the country. They knew what happened at each crossroads. Here a peeler, land grabber, agent or landlord had been attacked or killed. O'Malley's account is with a romantic tinge of an age-old tradition of resistance passed down from generation to generation, agrarian revolt seamlessly shading into nationalist revolt. Reality was, unsurprisingly, more complicated than that. Nonetheless, O'Malley's account captures something, something of how real that memory of rebellion was to the young subversives of the western seaboard in the spring and early summer of 1919, something of how rebellion meant an agrarian war. That was the model inherited from the past. But talking about the past, tradition and memories obscures the extent to which land issues were still live issues right up to O'Malley's time in Clare in 1919. In fact, in the very next year, in 1920, the Royal Irish Constabulary was to record more so-called agrarian outrages than for any year since 1882. My name is Terry Dunn. This is Peelers and Sheep, Rebel Tales from the Land. Stories rebelling against official versions. This is the land, but not a land of timeless tradition. This is the hothouse where the modern world is made. These are the hidden histories of the Irish Revolution. Before we launch into the episode, remember to subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. You'll find us available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher and TuneIn Radio. You can find out more about our project on our website, peelersandsheep.ie and look us up on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. And with that out of the way, let's get back to episode two. Prairie Fire, the story of the movement to break up the ranches. 1920 was the peak year of small farmer mobilisation during the revolution, but 1918 and 1922 and 23 also saw a significant amount of agrarian social conflict. The agrarian insurgency in those years is today a largely unknown and nameless movement, but it can be placed next to the Land War of 1879 to 1882 the Plan of Campaign of 1886-1891 and the Ranch War of the early 1900s. And all this wasn't just a matter of big headline-grabbing movements. Conflict was, on the one hand, deeply embedded in the rural social structure and was, on the other hand, culturally conditioned, shaped by the sort of social memory that O'Malley highlighted. Hence, there were incidents outside the landmark years. So, for instance, in Ballandarine in South Galway in March 1915, After the ranch war and before the movements of the revolutionary years, there took place an agrarian killing. One whose perpetrators were described in contemporary colonialist and racist language as, quote, outlaws worse than the blacks of darkest Africa, end quote. It was the Roman Catholic Bishop of Galway, Dr. O'Dee, who so described them. In Ballandarine in March 1915, nine shots were fired into the cottage of John Kelly, an eight-year-old farmer, wounding him and he later died of his wounds. Kelly's original holding was less than 30 acres, and he had already given up most of it. So it wasn't always peelers, agents or landlords who were being shot, and just who was a land grabber was, at times, just like beauty, a matter of the eyes of the beholder. So we'll look at the social structure that formed this conflict. We'll look at the course and nature of the agrarian movement of 1920, and then we'll look at the Republican response. That is to say, the response in the nationalist separatists who sought independence from the United Kingdom and who politically dominated the Irish Revolution, the ancestors of the main political parties in the Irish state today. Very broadly, we can divide the rural economy of Southern Ireland circa 1920 into three overlapping zones, a tillage east and south in Leinster and East Munster, a dairying south in Munster, 
and a beef corridor spanning the island from the western seaboard into North Leinster. Essentially, this diverse regionalised pattern led to diverse agrarian movements. And so, primarily in the south and east there was a movement of farm labourers with a central focus on wages and employment conditions. And primarily in the west there was a movement of small farmers with a central focus on the redistribution of farmland. It should be stressed though, this is a picture being painted with very broad strokes. It was in the west, and particularly in the great limestone plain stretching across East Galway, Roscommon and neighbouring parts of Mayo, that there was most strikingly a profound inequality in the distribution of farmland among farmers. That is to say, it was in this region where there was both proportionately large populations of smallholders and great ranches of fertile land. The situation there was described by a French essayist writing in the early 1900s. Quote, the first point that strikes one throughout the west of Ireland is the twofold characteristic of a general depopulation combined here and there with a sporadic overpopulation. Wherever the soil permits of it, there you may see vast grazing lands, empty and bare, carved out into quadrilaterals and enclosed within great dry walls through whose interstices the daylight penetrates as through a piece of lacework. Nowhere is there a living person or a house to be seen. Small black Kerry cows and Roscommon sheep, these are the sole inhabitants of this deserted prairie, pass on from the beaten track to the wastelands by the coast or to the rocky parts of the mountain or to the peat bogs on the plain. Here at long intervals you will see masses of hovels glued tightly against each other, very low and as it were half sunk into the ground, which thatched roofs of a rounded shape like the outline of an overturned boat. From a distance one would say there were merely rocks covered with bushes, a heap of mole hills shaped in alternate hollows and hillocks which stand out in grey relief against the brown black ground of the horizon. Some of them are mere huts built with dried mud, even today, there are still 20,000 of these mud cabins in Ireland. Thus, on the one hand, we find bare and deserted latifundia. On the other hand, here and there we find human beings herded into what might be called rural slums, piled together on wastelands. This is what is known throughout Ireland, in a strangely ironical phrase, as a congested district. In these places where there is land fit for cultivation, there are no inhabitants. In those places where there are inhabitants... There is no land or not enough land. Between man and the land all true balance has been destroyed by the existing artificial state of things. They have been, so to speak, divorced from one another by law. And now they remain there within sight of each other. The land idle and the man unemployed. That quote was from the book Contemporary Ireland by Louis-Paul de Bois, published in 1908. Now this problem was actually recognised by the state, the British state, and there was a state agency, the Congested Districts Board, which had among its roles the task of purchasing and redistributing farmland. Indeed, part of the point of popular mobilisation was to speed this process up, to compel owners to sell to the congested districts board. The board itself became a target when it adopted the policy of renting out in grassland ranches, lands it had already acquired for the purpose of redistribution as small holdings. The board's budgetary restrictions during the First World War caused further delay and further discontent. Another issue is that while this problem was at its most pronounced extreme in the counties of the West, it was not confined to there. So while the British state agency classified as congested districts the areas of the western seaboard, that is to say Donegal, all of Connacht, parts of Clare, Kerry and West Cork, on the other hand, the relevant agency of the new Irish state defined as uneconomic the majority of farms in the rest of the state too, 
uneconomic meant below £10 valuation or less than roughly 20 acres of reasonable land. So while the movement was concentrated in the West, that does not mean it was non-existent elsewhere or that it had no potential to spread over a wider area. The spark that lit the prairie fire on the East Connacht Plain in the spring of 1920 was the shooting in early March of extensive grazier Frank Shaw Taylor. There was a richly detailed account of the shooting in the local newspaper, the Connacht Tribune. Here's an excerpt of it. Being a large stock owner, it was Mr Shaw Taylor's custom to attend nearly all the principal fairs in the county, and he started at quarter to six on Wednesday morning to go to Galway. The morning was misty and cold, and it was scarcely past dawn when he left Moor Park in his Ford Motor. With him was his chauffeur, James Barrett, a young man of 30. Mr Shaw Taylor frequently drove his motor himself, and he did so on this occasion, Barrett sitting beside him in the front of the car. In the back was placed a box containing lunch, alongside which was laid Mr Shaw Taylor's stick and umbrella. Scarcely a mile from Moor Park and ahead on the right was Egan's public house, about 20 yards off the public road. When within about 40 yards of this public house, those in the motor noticed a barricade across the roadway, 10 yards in the far side of the house. Mr Shaw Taylor did not stop. What is this for was his only remark to his chauffeur, until they got within four or five yards of the obstruction which was composed of a donkey cart, one of the wheels of which had been taken off and placed on one side of the road, and a wooden gate standing on the other side of the cart. It was now almost exactly six o'clock. Mr Shaw Taylor stopped his motor, leaving the engine running, and directed Barrett to remove the obstacle. Barrett got out of the car, and the disconnected wheel was the first he went to take away. He was just proceeding to lift it when a volley of shots rang out, and frightened, let the wheel drop out of his hands. Another volley rang out, and then all was silent except for the noise of the hurrying footsteps. Shaw Taylor was a lifeless corpse thrown sideways in the front seat of the car. Barrett crept out from under the mudguard, and staggered to the sidewall, where he fell on the grass on the side of the road. That was the contemporary description from the Connacht Tribune. But the shooting dead of Frank Shaw Taylor was not a typical event. The usual tactics of the movement were deputations to property owners to urge them to sell, or to graziers or ranchers to give up the land they were renting, as well as cattle driving, which meant herding cattle and sheep off disputed properties. And there was also some level of sundry intimidation and sabotage. Some examples. On Tuesday, March 30th, 1920, according to newspaper reports, a 200-strong contingent, mostly comprising of tenants of the Ross estate, paraded on horseback in military formation through the district of Uchtarard, Galway, stopping at the residences of large grazers who held lands on the estate, and at the landlord's house, where they held negotiations with the agent. A Mr Jackson refused to give up a farm he held at Roscahill until threatened with removal to an unknown destination, that is, to a secret prison. In Hedford, just across Loch Carb from Uchtarard, one grazier was told he would be burned alive unless he signed his land over. The assembled crowd reportedly of over 1,000 people, went so far as to start the fire. James G. Alcorn, High Sheriff for County Galway, was brought to the edge of Loch Carib and given the choice of drowning or surrendering his farm. In Roscommon, one grazier had two pistols held to his head while his prospective grave was dug before his eyes. Cattle driving was carried on so extensively that by the middle of April, one Galway newspaper could claim that 30,000 acres had been cleared of livestock an area equivalent to nearly 50 square miles, and that this involved the driving of 20,000 cattle and as many sheep. Even if this was an exaggeration, if such an exaggeration was possible, it shows something of the magnitude of the movement. In early April, an especially ambitious cattle drive took place in South West Common. The cattle were to be driven to the square in its loan to be exhibited as a deterrent. 
The drivers were dispersed by a charge of police armed with batons and soldiers armed with bayonets, while a Lewis machine gun was mounted on its lone castle walls. By the second half of April, the road between Strokesand and Roscommon was blocked up with free-roaming cattle and sheep. One witness described it like so, quote, Roads and lanes all over the county were choked with wandering and half-starved beasts, end quote. Events in Portumnet, in the southeast of County Galway, on the 14th and 15th of April 1920, revealed something of the wider range of targets subjected to action. A wider variety than just landlords or large-scale graziers renting under the 11-month system. This area had been the core of the Clan Ricard estate, which had finally, in 1915, been compulsorily purchased by the Congested Districts Board. This after a decades-long struggle during which its eccentric miserly owner, Hubert de Burgh, Marcus de Clan Ricard, defied his tenants, Parliament and public opinion. De Burgh, who was possessed of a fortune separate from and independent of his estate, was famous for his appearance as, quote, a walking scarecrow without crows, end quote, because he mended his own clothes badly as a means of saving money. So this estate was already controlled by the board and was in the process of being redistributed. At issue was who would benefit from this redistribution. In April 1920, stock was cleared and lands ploughed and the farms belonged to what were known as planters. These were Ulster Protestants enticed down to take the lands of evicted tenants in the early 1890s. The evicted tenants had been evicted during the course of a rent strike. But also targeted was the property of a migrant, someone the congested districts board was moving from one part of the estate to another in its efforts to end the problem of congestion. All kinds of local disputes, many long-running, could find shelter beneath the overall umbrella of the war on the grassland ranches. In the environs of Galway town, interesting urban-rural divides were thrown up. There were fears that farmers in the surrounding countryside would seize the so-called accommodation lands used both by the town's butchers to host animals about to be slaughtered and where the dairyman who supplied the town's milk kept their cows. There was even suggestion that allotments used by townsfolk to grow vegetables would be taken over. The major urban-rural clash, though, was over the lands of Menlo, which the local government of Galway Town wanted as a public immunity, and that local government included Sinn Féin participation, while local farmers, led by one of the most active IRA companies in the county, wanted the lands divided among themselves. In this three-way dispute, Caretaker and herdsman James Ward was shot dead at the Gate Lodge in Menlo, his place of residence, in the spring of 1920. He worked for the owner of the disputed lands, Thomas Blake. So the urban political wing of the Republican movement was on one side in the Menlo dispute, and the rural military wing of the Republican movement was on the other. That brings us to the question of what role the Republican movement played in the agrarian mobilisation. Well, it wasn't just one role, because the Republican movement was multifaceted and divided and diverse, as indeed was the agrarian movement. But for starters, we shouldn't necessarily assume that all cattle drivers were Republicans, or at least militant Republicans. In one instance, near Milltown Malby in West Clare, there was an attempt to seize the land of an imprisoned Republican. And in one of the Portumnic cattle drives, a firearm was taken from a rancher who was using it to hold the drivers at bay, and then that gun was handed over to the Royal Irish Constabulary Police. These actions are certainly not suggestive of militant Republican sympathies. On the other hand, in plenty of places the cattle drives were organised by the local Sinn Féiners. This seems to have been the case, for instance, in Kilbride and Ballinaglish in County Roscommon. But the leadership of the Republican movement, on both a county level and on a national level, wanted the situation brought under control and the agrarian movement suppressed. So in February 1920, for instance, 30 men from the 4th and 5th Battalions Mid Clare Brigade Irish Republican Army were mobilised to break up a so-called independent brigade of their former comrades in the Connolly district, and this independent brigade was involved in agrarian conflict. On a similar note, 
One version of events, given by an IRA officer and recorded by the Bureau of Military History, typifies a haughty disdain. Quote, West Clare Column did not at any time go west of Gilkey. This is because it wasn't, quote, a very healthy area for outside volunteers. The inhabitants reveled in an orgy of disputes, principally agrarian, end quote. Another Bureau of Military History witness statements describes the situation in Quilty, which is also in West Clare. Quote, in those days it was a thickly populated district, mainly comprised of small farmers and landless men, such as fishermen and those of the labouring class who depended mainly on kelp burning for a livelihood. Situated in the locality, however, was a good-sized non-resident grazing farm. End quote. Men from a company of the IRA from the district of Kilmurray were marshalled in defence of that grazing farm, under the command of Roman Catholic curate Father Michael McKenna, who was also an IRA officer. But these interlopers were held off by stone-throwing locals. Well, initially at least they were. They later returned in force. Interestingly, the owner of the farm in Quilty ascribed her problems to, quote, persons calling themselves the Sinn Féin Club, end quote, and, when seeking compensation from the British government, talked up her role in supporting the British military. The Republican counter-mobilisation was not simply something coming top-down from a national leadership. These were local mobilisations and local indignation directed against the agrarian movement. Likewise, the desire to put a break on agrarian protest was coming from Republicans who would take both the treaty side and the anti-treaty side in the 1922-23 Civil War. As a national initiative, building on localised arbitration courts, Sinn Féin rolled out a more ambitious programme of Dáil land courts. These courts adjudicated in land disputes. Tyrone Republican Kevin O'Shea was appointed as a special judicial commissioner for these courts. He himself admitted that in the vast majority of the cases where he ruled in favour of congested smallholders and for the division and sale of lands, this was abortive, as claimants could not meet the prices set by the court valuers. During the months of May to August 1920, O'Shea himself ran courts in Ballinasloe, Clare Morris, Ballyhawness, Roscommon, Castlereagh, Mullingar, Castle Pollard, Burr, Portleach, Tullamore, Grenard, Longford, Manor Hamilton and occasionally in Dublin. And further south there were yet more courts he was not involved in. O'Shea later claimed that the Dáil courts worked because of popular consent. These were the people's courts. They had a legitimacy never granted to any strand of British administration. But his own account of events also claims that the coercive power of the IRA was essential to bolstering the authority of the courts. O'Shea claimed that the Republican institutions, quote, checked the mad career of an agrarian revolution, the most serious that this country had ever experienced, end quote. But it is just as likely, if not more likely, that the decisive factor in the decline of the movement was the seasonality of agrarian protest. The springtime of the year, the beginning of the agricultural calendar, was the time period during which major mobilisation would take place, as land would have to be in use from then onwards. For the same reason, this is when land lettings took place. It wasn't until the middle of the summer of 1920 that a Dáil decree emphatically ruled against land protests, proclaiming, quote, that the present time, when the Irish people are locked in a life and death struggle with their traditional enemy, is ill-chosen for stirring up strife amongst our fellow countrymen, and that all energies must be directed towards the clearing out, not the occupier of this or that piece of land, but the foreign invader of our country, end quote. This was proclaimed by the Dáil on the 29th of June 1920. 
The Dáil was the separatist parliament which sat in Dublin, in a sort of embryonic dual power situation. The Dáil was in the eyes of the government of the British Crown an illegal subversive body, but it was constituted by Republican separatist members of parliament elected in the 1918 UK general election. Now it should be stressed that this declaration was very much divergent from what would have been the mainstream of nationalism in rural Ireland. Nationalism became popular in rural Ireland principally through an orientation to the interests of agrarian classes. Indeed, Sinn Féin and the Volunteers had led cattle drives in 1918. A Sinn Féin pamphlet published in late 1917, written by long-time agrarian radical Lawrence Gill, asked, quote, Why have not the ranches, which are all evicted lands, been distributed among evicted tenants, holders of uneconomic farms, labourers, farmers' sons and other landless people, and called on young landless people to clear cattle off every ranch and keep them cleared until distributed? End quote. Previously, clearing out the occupier of this or that piece of land and clearing out the foreign invader of our country were seen as one and the same thing. The land of Ireland for the people of Ireland was the foremost nationalist motto. To some, a process of land redistribution was seen as an inherent part of the process of decolonisation and indeed as a central part of economic development. Part of reorientating agriculture away from a focus on producing cattle for export on the hoof that being the form of agricultural production with the least potential for spin-off industries as it required the least inputs and needed no processing, the ranches were seen as a facet of economic dependence on Britain, as the product of famine-era clearances and ultimately as the product of Cromwellian land confiscations. The ranch was even seen as a hotbed of cultural anglicisation. In 1907, the Sinn Féin newspaper damned Bullockdom, claiming that, quote, it produced the causal Catholics, the Shonin priest, the Shonin magistrate, the Shonin prelate, the Shonin soldier of England, the Shonin fox hunter. The bullockdom of the land has furnished raw material for educational centres of denationalisation, where recruiting goes steadily on for the ranks of a materialistic imperialism, and where imitation of an inferior race is a cult. End quote. In 1920, land redistribution itself was not at issue. Everyone, including the British government, recognised the need for some land redistribution. The question was to what extent would land be redistributed and how would that redistribution be carried out. Indeed, land redistribution was, as we shall see, only really questioned by the far left of the Irish Revolution. However, the issue of redistributing land threw up real problems for the various political forces of Irish nationalism. In earlier decades, social divisions could be masked beneath an ostensibly unified campaign against landlords. And landlords, for the most part, were not supporters of Irish nationalism and so were shall we say, easy targets. As the main focus shifted to expanding existing farms or creating new ones at the expense not only of landlords but of richer strata of farmers, this posed the potential for opening up divisions within the nationalist camp. A focus on defending the rights of tenants against landlords did not pose too much of a challenge for nationalists and separatists. But this didn't really address the fundamental problem for farmers whose farms were too small to make a living. And when that issue came to the fore, things started to get more politically difficult for any shade of Irish nationalism. And this wasn't just a matter of farmers. There was a food supply crisis during the First World War and its immediate aftermath. So urban dwellers wanted some provision of allotments and cow plots. And in Kerry, agricultural labourers were demanding an extra acre. After having been provided with public housing and adjacent garden plots of up to one acre under a British government scheme. The Western Land War of 1920 goes some way to explaining an apparent conundrum. 
While the populations of some counties were apparently so inactive during the Irish Revolution, Connacht in general and Galway in particular were some of those apparently inactive areas, as was West Clare relative to East Clare. But this is only a question, only a puzzle, when the revolution is defined as the activity of the Irish Republican Army. With a broader, more expansive definition, we see that it is simply that those western districts had a different revolution. On the other hand, in the Easter Rebellion of 1916, in Galway, the call to arms received a particularly popular and extensive hearing. Something had changed by the 1920s. Either separatist energy had gone down an agrarian channel, or people were alienated from the wider Republican movement over its ultimately conservative agrarian policy. Now, in 1922, there was a revival of agrarian conflict, so the new Irish Free State inherited the challenge of an insurgent agrarian mobilisation. The response of the Irish Free State was much the same as the response of the British state, only more so. That is to say the Free State was to respond with a more biting repression and a more generous reform. Patrick J. Hogan, the Minister for Agriculture, in a private communication with the military authorities, made plain that the British had been too soft in dealing with cattle drivers. He wrote, As I said, it is quite impossible to deal with the question under the Ministry of Home Affairs as an ordinary criminal matter. The English tried it here for 20 or 30 years. I saw their measures in operation myself and they were utter failures. Cattle are driven from a man's land. The police interfere and arrest some people. They are brought up on the next court day before a magistrate. All the neighbours are in attendance. The court is crowded. The general atmosphere is that a few martyrs are being tried for highly moral and religious convictions which they refuse to repudiate. There is no evidence because, of course, the cattle are always driven at night, or perhaps a good alibi is provided. The magistrate is unable to convict and the prisoners are released and carried through the town on the shoulders of their admiring neighbours and taken home with, with tar barrels lighted in front of them. That night the owner's walls are knocked, he receives a threatening letter, and if he has put his cattle back on his land they are driven again, and so on until the owner either gives up the land or is shot. Even in a case where the parties looking for the land make the mistake of committing the first act in the open and before witnesses and so are convicted, it makes no difference in the long run. When they go to jail their friends and sympathisers immediately commit criminal injuries and don't make the mistake a second time of committing them before witnesses. The men in jail are regarded as heroes and martyrs and if the owner succeeds, which is very rare, in holding the land for a time, he always succumbs either literally or by giving up the land when they do come out of jail. This land war is no new thing in Ireland. The parties know every move in the game. They are prepared to do now even more than they ever did before and unless we take advantage of the present situation to meet the case, we will have a sordid and fairly bloody squabble on our hands for the next 10 years. That is what Hogan, Minister for Agriculture, wrote in December 1922. Hence the Special Infantry Corps, a new gendarmerie for dealing with agrarian and labour disputes in the aftermath of revolution. A male fist that sits uncomfortably with liberal notions of policing by consent. Notions so important to the images projected by both the British and Irish states. On the other hand, there was a great expansion of the already existing state programme of redistributionist land reform. Firstly, in the form of the Hogan Land Act of 1923, and then there was a further expansion with the 1932 Land Act. In the early decades of the Irish Free State, as much as 20% of farmland, one-fifth, was redistributed. We can see the impact of this policy at its most profound level in those counties which formed the heartland of the 1920 movement. Taking 1901 as a baseline, by 1960, there had been a 68% decrease in the number of farms of 200 acres and over in Galway, a 70% decrease 
in the number of such large farms in Mayo. And in Roscommon, there was a 73% decrease in the number of farms over 200 acres. Now, it is important to recognise that this represented a solidification of the small farmer class. That is, the enlargement of the farms of people who already had farms. The genuinely landless agricultural proletariat did not benefit to any great degree from this land reform. And in fact, it may have been some ways inimical to their interests, as breaking up large farms made for less employment. It's also important to recognise that land redistribution represented at best a stopgap solution to the problems of the smallholders. One voice in the Irish Revolution dissenting from the romanticised ideal of breaking up the ranches to create a sturdy independent yeomanry, a Jeffersonian paradise of small property owners, was that of Marxist James Connolly, who was executed by the British Army in 1916 for his role in a short-lived insurrection. Connolly argued that, quote, every fresh application of science to agriculture Every cheapening of transit brought about by the development of transatlantic commerce. Everything in short which increases the facilities of trade tends to cheapen the price of agricultural produce and leaves an ever-decreasing margin of profit for the cultivator. To Connolly, the end result would be a, quote, hopeless struggle for subsistence, end quote, and, quote, the doom of the petty farmers of Ireland under the capitalist system, end quote. Connolly wrote those words as the 19th century turned into the 20th century. It is impossible to accept them today without qualification. We have the 2020 vision provided by hindsight. The sort of centralisation through market competition that Connolly wrote of was in fact made a much slower, more protracted and drawn out process by state policy, including the state policy of land redistribution. But by the second half of the 20th century that process had reasserted itself. And... By the 1980s, there was a declining number of farms and an increase in the average size of farms. We'll be back soon with our third episode called The Last Campaign of the Leinsters, which looks at an Irish unit in the British Army, specifically the 1st Battalion of the Leinster Regiment and its role in suppressing a peasant revolt in southwest India in 1921. Remember to subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. You can find out more about our project on our website peelersandsheep.ie and look us up on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram as well.